This is the Speech Uncensored podcast, where we dig deeper into all the nooks and crannies of the medical speech and language pathology field. I'm Leanne, your host, and I started this podcast because I wanted to learn more. And it turns out that there is an endless supply of information (laughs) that I can learn about our field. So I hope you enjoyed joining me and learning something new today about Lindsay's topic. So here we go. All right, Lindsay, welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted that Dr. Heidrich (laughs) can join us. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so um, we're going to be talking about an SLP's role in multidisciplinary teams. Right. And specifically the ones that you work on, which are all related to neurodegenerative diseases. They are, yes. So I do um, an ALS clinic that I'm a part of, a muscular dystrophy association clinic, and then Parkinson's disease clinic. Cool. So, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us some background. Sure. So, um, I've been practicing for about 15 years as a speech pathologist. Um, I have actually kind of worked across a lifespan. So, I have done um, therapy from early intervention all of the way through geriatrics. But um, I think probably if I had to focus and hone in on what my area of interest is, it would certainly be neurological involvement of some sort. And in particular, neurodegenerative disease. So what happens over time in these diseases that symptoms worsen and the body itself worsens over time. Um, And I have worked on, yeah, a lot of multidisciplinary teams, a lot of collaboration with various providers. Um, I constantly am like eating up whatever people are saying, listening to new ways people describe things, getting the perspective of um, providers that there is this overlap between speech, language, and other disciplines. So, um, yeah, I mean, and I think the longer you get out of this field, the more that you're just like, there's so much to know. So true. <laughs> oh, preaching to the choir over here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's just like, whoa, I had, I thought I had a pretty good framework. And then, you know, you just realize how much there is to know. So, but I have, I really enjoyed working on as part of a team. It's a completely different environment, but really um, fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And then, um, so I, I, like I said, I did my P or my SLPD about three years in the, over the past three years. And I finished in last July, I guess. So July of 2018. So I'm a newbie. Yeah. It's been almost a whole year. Almost a whole year. Yes. 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 (laughs) So, um, but yeah, I have really enjoyed just like taking some of that learning that I had from my SLPD and now applying it clinically. So Mm -hmm. it's been great. Nice. Were you still treating clinically and doing all your other work and having a family while getting your clinical doctor? I was. Yes. Yes. So I, um, yeah, I worked 40 hours a week and, um, did my SLPD, um, alongside that. I mean, I have to say, like, kudos to my husband because he was a rock star. Like, he really helped. We had a – my daughter was from age 2 to 5 when I started. So um, he really helped with, like, bedtimes, and he would take her and take her to the library, and I would go to the library just in a different portion of the library (laughs) to work. Family trips to the library. That's right. That's right. Um, And we – through it it was one it wasn't easy and it probably wasn't pretty most of the time but you know you got to do what you got to do and and it happened so yeah 
Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. It was great. I'm glad that I, yeah, I'm glad that I had a, a sounding board, though, during all of that time when I was having to go back and relearn some of the statistics and oh, things no. like that. I, mean, well, I just got a stress knot in my shoulder. Just the thought of it, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, but I love to tell the tale. So. <laughs> oh. All right, so... That's your background. That's mm-hmm. what you're doing now. What? Um, so tell me a little bit more about all the little pies you have your hands in now. Yeah. I don't think that metaphor came out right. No, but I, I totally understand. <laughs> so, so like my kind of week is so I'm clinical faculty, so I see patients um, clinically with students alongside of me. Um, on my Mondays, I'm in ALS clinic pretty much all day. And then this past semester, I taught a neurodegenerative disease, like small course. So mm-hmm. that was fun on Monday afternoons. And then Tuesdays, I work at a children's center for kids that have vision impairments. And I do that in the mornings on Tuesdays. And then the afternoons, I do the MDA clinic. Oh my gosh, you are everywhere. I am. <laughs> And then Wednesday, I just do Parkinson's all day. So oh, okay. You know, just, simple. Yeah. Just do a little Parkinson's <laughs> on Wednesdays. All day long. <laughs> and then Thursday, I go back to the Children's Center for the Visually Impaired. And then on Fridays, I do a Parkinson's voice group. Oh. And um, so it's a group setting with about 8 to 10 individuals with Parkinson's and then grad students working together to increase loudness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, just kind of all over the board. But yeah. it's fun. I mean, it. there's never a dull moment. There's a lot of variation in my schedule. Um, but I like it. I mean, I like to have something different and new. And it's a cognitive challenge in itself to make yeah. sure I'm at the right place at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because if it's Wednesday and you think it's Thursday, there's going right. to be problems. There's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a problem. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good. I mean, it's... Um, I have to wear a lot of hats, obviously, mm-hmm. and kind of change my the way that I describe things and teach things and stuff to patients that are adults versus kids versus parents and spouses. It's, um, but I think that's the fun of it all, really. Yeah, you know, as a clinician, especially the the longer that you get out and the more you try to hone these skills, that's when you really figure out, oh, I don't know quite as much as I thought I did. Or I thought that they understood what I said, and I don't know that they really did, you know. So, that look on their face tells me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, but, yeah, it's been a, a whirlwind, but fun. Nice. So, yeah. All right. Well, shall we dive into the topic? Sure. Let's okay. do it. Now, you mentioned you were on the three different mm-hmm. multidisciplinary teams. Mm-hmm. So I guess for simplicity's sake, we should pick one and okay. start there. Let's do that. And like, yeah, I have a million questions. You okay. Know, like, who's on it? What does it look like? Or where do you meet? How do you talk? Like, Okay, perfect. I can definitely. <laughs> All those things. So why don't we talk about the ALS clinic? Because it's probably the biggest one and the most moving part. So okay, yeah. that probably would be easiest. Um, so the way that that one is structured is it's truly multidisciplinary, meaning that there are numerous providers and different specialties that are all on one team. And then there's also some interprofessional collaboration. So I actually see all of my patients alongside of a dietitian, and we actually go into the room together and provide our um, kind of clinical encounter and our recommendations together. So... Is this on an outpatient basis or acute? It is outpatient. Okay. Yep. Yep. So all the clinics that I work in are all outpatient. Okay. 
So um, the different providers that we have in the ALS team include neurology, um, respiratory therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, social worker, dietitian, speech therapy. There's a representative from like the ALS association that helps to kind of coordinate care outside the clinic. Mm -hmm. There's a nurse coordinator. Mm. Then there is a LPN assistant. So the nurse coordinators are RN and then LPN. And then there's a whole research team that just coordinates all the different research that's going on with ALS. And that team probably has three to four people that come from just research. So it's a lot of people. Well, I'm wondering, and so the the client or the patient needs mm-hmm. essentially kind of with each of these people as they're needed? As needed, yes. Do, are they given like a page with everyone's picture? And they are. It? I was say, they how would are. they keep that straight? That's exactly what happens. So they get these little um, headshots of each of mm-hmm. us as providers with a little bio. Oh. And the little bio talks about us, but also I think honestly more important than like knowing about Lindsay Heydrich is really what speech therapy does and what to expect from our visit, right? Because uh a lot of times patients are like, I don't have any speech concerns. Why is she coming in here talking to me about swallowing or memory? And so at least it gives the patients kind of a framework to know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, with ALS, it's a little different because patients can start off with maybe limb onset issues where they have muscle weakness in their hands or legs but they really have no speech and swallowing concerns. Or they could start off bulbar onset, and they have speech and swallowing concerns. Um, And so depending on what their needs are, they may not see the whole team. They may see pieces of the team. They always will see um, the neurologist, and they always see respiratory therapists because Mm -hmm. the respiratory change is one of the indicators that they they track really closely with ALS. So... Mm -hmm. Um, but in a given day, we see on those clinic days, so we see patients once a week and we see them for their visits usually are three or four hours. And in that chunk of time, they might have eight visits. Wow. So, you know, I mean, the grand scheme, when you think about sitting in a room for four hours, you're like, oh, that's a long time to sit. But if you get eight visits yeah. from eight different providers all in one, you know, setting, that really helps you as far as, you know, some of our patients, it's not easy for them to get in and out of their vehicles mm-hmm. to get into the hospital or to an outpatient clinic. So to actually coordinate that care is really helpful for them. Um, but yeah, the, the structure is interesting because it's a rotation that isn't like a set rotation. So every patient's name is on a board with their check-in time. And then all of the disciplines that may see the patient are kind of across the top and it's basically a grid format. So when that patient room opens up, you can move your magnet down and you can (laughs) go in and see that patient. Um, but you're, it's not like Lindsay always gets to see patients first, and then it's respiratory therapy. That's not how it goes. It's kind of a free-for-all rotation. Um, so sometimes you sit a little bit, but oftentimes when we're sitting, what we're doing is we're going through the next patient that mm-hmm. we're planning on seeing, and kind of the um, dietitian and I will be talking about what we need to gather um, what paperwork we need to take into the room, what resources we need to give to the patient. And ideally, we would love to, like, 
pre-plan all of that stuff. But as you can imagine, things come up all the time that are out of the blue. And you'll be talking to a patient. And as you're talking, they'll say, oh, what about this? And what about Ooh, this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, that's what we do, right? Mm-hmm. So, but, um, and then at the end of the clinic, all of that information that that patient was given is put into like, we do recommendation portion of our note, and then we put that into a patient instructions um, tab on our on our electronic medical record. Mm-hmm. Then when the patient checks out from their visit, they get their next appointment and then all those recommendations that we had given during mm-hmm. that clinic day. But you, you've also taken in handouts and educational materials together, mm-hmm. so they have that as well. Mm-hmm. And then they get a summary of each of their um, appointment visitors and kind of that little tagline too. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, now, when you go in to see these patients in your clinic, in the ALS clinic, are your graduate students involved in that? Yeah. Are they in the room as well? Yes, they are. And so what tends to happen, you know, in the beginning of the semester when they're new and fresh and don't have a lot of experience, what tends to happen is I'm leading the encounter and they're observing. Mm-hmm. And they're slowly taking on more and more tasks as the semester goes on. So one of the initial tasks they may take on is doing an oral mechanism exam mm-hmm. or administering the eating assessment tool, something that like that that's kind of more straightforward. And then eventually they start asking background questions and they start making recommendations towards the end of their time with me. So um, we kind of do some gradual (laughs) role reversal, you Uh know, and taking over. But, um, you know, I did this I did this rotation when I was in graduate school 17 years ago, and I can remember finding it to be so, so interesting and like professionally gratifying because what I found was like I, I learned so much more from the patients and their families than probably I ever offered. And the great thing is I still feel that way. Like mm-hmm. all this time later, I still feel like I learned so much from patients and their families. And nice. um, yeah, it's a very rewarding experience for sure. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of how our structure of our clinic works um, on the ALS clinic side. How long um, do you get for your and the dietitian's portion? That's a great question. So it varies. I mean, I, I actually kind of today when I was seeing patients, I was trying to track it a little bit because I thought maybe you might ask me this question. <laughs> um, and so like, for instance, one of my patients I saw for 15 minutes. And then another patient, we were talking about um, the feeding tube mm-hmm. and kind of she had she's been mulling it over for about three months. And um, she's now down to pretty much doing like a uh, puree ground diet. Mm -hmm. And so she's considering the feeding tube much more now and kind of feeling like the rubber's meeting the road and she's got to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So for that visit, we spoke for 40 minutes, you know, and and we were really, we talked a lot about that, um, kind of the decision making that we look at for feeding tubes in ALS and... Um, kind of debunk some myths. She got mm-hmm. to see a feeding tube, and that was really helpful. Um, so those visits just tend to last a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I guess, yeah, just I was thinking about that planning, and, you know, if there's an open spot, then that's when you go see a, a patient. 
And then I guess I wonder when other people would plan to see. And I guess they just have to wait till the room is empty. That's kind of how it works, yeah. I mean, and there are times, don't get me wrong, like if if you're sitting in a room and somebody else is like, I need to get into that room. You've been in there for 45 minutes. <laughs> they will knock on the door and they will say, hi, Lindsay, how much longer are you going to be? Oh. And you know, you know that they need to get in. So, um, but yeah, we try to be cognizant and courteous, but... Honestly, a lot of times um, we know because we have a pre-clinic meeting in the morning. So we all show up right at 8 o'clock and we do a conference together. And we go through and talk about each patient. So we kind of know what their priorities are that day. And so say that they are um, really needing to talk to speech about you know, difficulty with swallowing and potential for feeding tube. And we know that we need to pull the dietitian in because we're talking about feeding tube. Then what they do for the other providers, say physical therapy and occupational therapy are lower priorities that day, then we'll put we'll make a notation of that on the board, like that those are low priorities. And then after our visit, and they've seen the other kind of people that they have to see, then we ask the patient, PT and OT are available, would you still like to see them? And mm-hmm. sometimes patients will say, absolutely. And sometimes patients will say, no, I'm good. You know, I don't have any changes in that regard. I feel like I'm doing fine. Um so that's kind of how we handle it. Okay. How often do the patients come in for these three to four hour mega meetings? <laughs> yeah. Every three months. Just so once every three months. Once every three months, yes. The one thing that, you know, so it's interesting, though, because what we're really kind of a consultative model, I would say, for these clinics. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's no care that the patient needs in between, right? Like mm-hmm. that we somehow are just handling everything so nicely in that visit. You know, a lot of times we will be referring patients to maybe have um, a swallow study or maybe have an AAC evaluation or maybe have home health, PT, OT speech. So there is kind of a continuation after us a lot of times if that's what's needed. Mm-hmm. Um there's always, unfortunately, in this disease, we talk about hospice and palliative care, too, and what that would look like, and getting those pay, those um, providers in to do, like, home assessments and help with that transition of care, too. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So then um, once you've met with patients for that day, that, that clinic day, is there a time when the team, the whole team, gets together to review things, or when do you need to touch base with other team members? Mm-hmm. So the way that we do our um, clinic in general is we have a big conference room that we all sit in in between patients. So the nurse coordinator stays in that room throughout the whole clinic pretty much as much as she can. Sometimes she has, she gets called in to, to help with clinic too, but for the most part, she's kind of in that room and she's helping with the flow of clinic. She's saying, oh, Lindsay, you're out of that room. Can you go and see Mr. Jones in this room? And uh, sends me to another room. Um, but she's also our conduit for getting all of the orders and everything like that. All of those loose ends tied up. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we you know, communicate through her for the physicians that she supports. And then she has this laundry list of orders that are needed to be put into the to the chart into the system and so she does that after clinic is over with the physicians that support our clinic so we have three three to four primary doctors that work in that clinic and they each see 
you know, about three or four patients per clinic. So we see on total about, maybe even more than that, maybe they see more like four to five patients. And we have about 15 patients that come in every Monday wow. to our clinic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's busy. I'm, I'm interested that it's only like, you know, one Monday and it's pretty full. Like, I guess I always just imagine like, what about expansion or adding days or changing it up? Like, yeah, you know, I mean, I think that that's always been a question of like when and if that would happen and a lot of it is you know as any hospital group experiences just space physical space and having the physical space to use rooms for that amount of time because as you can imagine right I mean one doctor in that amount of time could see 10 patients in four hours Mm -hmm. Um, so to block that many patient rooms is hard it's just a logistically it's kind of a challenge um but you know even during my time of practice I have seen those numbers increase and um you know we used to when I first came back and took this job at KU um we were seeing about eight patients a Monday and now we see anywhere from 13 to 15 mm-hmm. and so um, I think more people are getting involved in multidisciplinary care you mm-hmm. know like that that they really see the benefit of that um, more physicians are referring patients that have diseases like ALS or um, muscular dystrophies to a clinic that can offer that mm-hmm. and so I just think that there is we're having a greater need maybe not a greater increase of diagnoses but just a greater need for that kind of care so yeah. it'll be interesting I mean I I don't have the crystal ball of answering that question but um but yeah I mean it's it's busy mm-hmm. it is on Tuesday through Friday what mm-hmm. is that space used for um so other n- neurology in general so okay. other neurological disorders so so it's in the neurology's doctor's office yes so Mondays are ALS clinic. The rest of the week, they're just seeing their other regular yeah. neurology yeah. patients. I mean, and actually, even okay. in that same building, there are patients that are getting seen for, you know, MS and Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease mm-hmm. and other, you know, neuropathies and all kinds of different things while we're having ALS clinic. We're just in one little portion of that big clinical uh, okay. space. Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. So I know it's it's crazy to think that so many different uh, diagnoses are working under one physical space, but yeah, we are. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, that is more of a truly like how we kind of cycle through in in ALS clinic where there's that big number of providers. But then um, like my time in Parkinson's disease clinic, it's a smaller number of providers. So it's the neurologist and his research staff and his nurses. Um, I work next door to um, the nurses who do the programming for the deep brain stimulators, which is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I work out of that clinic on Wednesdays. There's an occupational therapist that works out of that clinic on Tuesdays. And then there's a health psychologist that works out of that clinic on Monday and Thursdays. So we each kind of share, so that myself as a speech therapist and the OT and the health psychologist all share one office. We're just there on different days. So it works. I mean, it works. It's just a little bit of a dance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, 
Um, but in that visit and in, in that clinic, it more is the physician sees the patient first, then his um, and then his research staff may see the patient, and then he comes in, he kind of debriefs with me, and you know says, okay, this patient's having increased difficulty with swallowing or they're noticing more decreased volume or they've noticed some cognitive changes and I'd like you to look at those things and so I go and see the patient and kind of go through again a clinical encounter that's kind of specialized to that clinic okay yeah so both the ALS and the PD clinic both have researchers involved they do so Mm -hmm. what does that look like yeah and does every patient coming to that clinic, participate in research? Is it kind of a requirement? Do they do some people just not care and they're like, sure, whatever? Or like, how does that work out? Both. I mean, we definitely have, so every patient is at least talked to about research. Um, you know, of course, with research studies, there's criteria that has to be met. And if people qualify for different, you know, research studies, mm-hmm. they either meet a inclusionary criteria or they don't. Um but, you know, we the thing about just being in the Midwest and especially Kansas and Missouri is it's pretty rural. Mm-hmm. And so we pull from such a huge geographical area that what sometimes happens is we may have a patient who lives five or six hours from the med center and they would, they're just physically so far away that traveling for research is hard for them. Mm-hmm. So that sometimes happens. Some people elect away from doing research. They just don't want to do it. Um, but I would say the vast majority are involved in some capacity. Um, you know, the re- some, some research studies are more um, involved than others, and some are just tracking the disease and its progression. And a lot of patients, and, and they do some genetic testing, so a lot of patients want that for themselves and their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that has been, you know, it's been interesting to just see the evolution of how much more patients are learning and advocating and and now with like technology they are reading all the time about what's available and wanting to know if we're doing the same thing that's happening in Boston or whatever or even more so like what's happening internationally Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's been that part has really been cool to see over the course of my career to see that change Mm -hmm. that's cool yeah yeah it is neat it's great. It's, it's awesome to see, you know, I think in multidisciplinary care, what you really want is you want to, you want to empower your patient, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you really want your patient. I always tell my patients, I'm like, my job isn't to tell you what to do. My job is to, to give you the resources so you make the best decision and the right plan for yourself. And that might look a little bit different than the guy down the hallway. Mm-hmm. And neither one of you are right or wrong. But at the end of the day... To do my job well is to educate you, you know, and I, and I think that that's kind of taking what we had traditionally thought about medical care and kind of turning it on its side a bit. Mm-hmm. But I feel like when patients are empowered and they know more, they feel. I mean, I think it just makes such a difference across the board. Yes, that's like that's huge for me because I came into this field after taking um, some classes in public health. <laughs> And it's all about providing education and letting that person make the best decisions. Absolutely. When they're equipped with the knowledge, they can make the decisions that are relevant and important to them. And there's no need for us to tell them, you need to do this. If you want to be healthy, this is what you need to do. We don't know That's exactly what's important right. to them, mm-hmm. what they value. Mm-hmm. It's, it 
could be totally different than what we care about and what we what we would prioritize. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that is, so, you know, having students is such a great way to self-reflect because they ask you questions all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. I yep. mean, they, they really make you have to do that self-reflection a lot. And what I've realized is the importance of just listening, like just be quiet and mm-hmm. listen to what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And ask them those questions like like probably what you learned in public health asking those confirmation questions this is what i'm hearing you say do you is this do i have this right mm-hmm. and it's okay to have them say no you misinterpreted that <laughs> yeah but we you know we we want to get it right right because we're putting it in, into their chart like mm-hmm. that that goes with them for their whole medical history is is there in our chart and i want to make sure that i'm i'm understanding what patients want and what's important to them and I'm not putting my own spin or slant on mm-hmm. their care because I think it's not about me. Yeah. It's just not. <laughs> yeah. I like to tell them that I'm just the guide. I'm here to tell you what's available and give you the information and kind of show you the way. Right. But, like, you, I'm not going to carry you through. Right. You know, that you have to make options. You have to make choices. You have to make decisions. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Cool, cool. All right. Um, do you want to talk about your MDA clinic? Because I think that was your yeah. third one. Yeah, so that's my third one. Okay. So um, it's really interesting because, oh, man, I mean, it's so many diseases that we cover in that clinic, all of the um, all the different things that affect the muscles. That So some patients with ALS or primary lateral sclerosis, which is PLS, sometimes they come into that clinic, but mostly it's kind of things like um, – Oh, we might see Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, diseases like that that affect the muscles, um, limb girdle, muscular dystrophy, um, myotonia, that kind of stuff. And so it can be, you know, and we can have a list of patients and they each one could have a different diagnosis that day. <laughs> and so talk about having to like up your game a bit, you know, to know about all the different diseases. And, and to be honest with you, Leanne, there's days like where we have things that are so rare that mm-hmm. there are only a handful of patients in the U.S. that have maybe this particular diagnosis. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've never seen that before, uh-huh. right? And, yeah. and those patients know that you have never seen that diagnosis <laughs> They before. know they have something very rare. <laughs> they do, they do. So, um, you know, I, I do a lot of lit reviews. Like, I will sit and, you know, if I see something new that I've never seen before, I will, I'm on my, my laptop figuring it out and looking up PubMed searches and all kinds of stuff just to see if I can find out um, some information. But I will say the Muscular Dystrophy Association has, on their home webpage, has some great resources um, so that has been really helpful just for my clinical learning. But those visits, again, are with the, the dietitian. So mm-hmm. I see my patients with her. Are um, you guys like besties? We are. We, we jokingly <laughs> said today we're like sisters. Uh, <laughs> like, nice. Yeah, she was like, you are in the chart and locking me out. So, <laughs> <laughs> But we, I think that we both could like... We know each other's verbiage so much that I, it's so cool because a lot of times I will be talking about feeding tubes and swallowing and, you know, I'm talking about the progression of the swallowing weakening and then she can talk about the nutritional intake through the feeding tube. But it's such a nice way of like segueing because I know enough of what she says that I can like cue her. Lead up to it. Yes. So, 
you know, hey, Susan, will you tell this patient a little bit about some of the alternative alternatives to just traditional tube feeding supplements if they don't want to have something that's as sugary, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of things? Mm-hmm. Or what do patients that have diabetes put through the tube? Yeah. And then she goes on her little spiel, but it feels very conversational to the patient, and it doesn't feel as much like a laundry list of things that you're going through, but it feels more like dialogue. So Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, For all the clinics, are you guys the only, like, team that will go in and see? You know, not necessarily. So PT and OT a lot of times team up in the MDA clinic. Okay. Um, And it's really nice because they do a lot of, um, like, wheelchair assessments together. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes, like, not not too long ago, the OT and I did an AAC evaluation together on a really complicated case because I needed some help with like access and I mean I didn't know what to look for and to do Mm -hmm. and um, she brought up a lot of really great points and we were able to do that kind of collaboratively together Um, so yeah I mean there's a lot of that kind of everybody's pretty copacetic which is awesome so (laughs) you know it's one of those things where it's like hey I still need to see so and so do you need to too and then we can go in together Uh Um, especially towards the end of so that clinic is an afternoon clinic and a lot of times patients, it's 5 o'clock, and they're like, I want to go. Yeah. And as opposed to having two visits, you yeah, know, going in together, mm-hmm. and it allows you to kind of feed off of each other, too, and and make recommendations. So, yeah, we do a lot of that, I feel like. Very nice. Yeah. 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 So, um, but, yeah, and then in Parkinson's Clinic, we do, I'll just talk just touch back on that just a little bit we um cover like kind of the idiopathic parkinson's but then we also see people that have like the parkinson's plus diseases so they might have um progressive supranuclear palsy mm-hmm. or multiple systems atrophy different mm-hmm. diseases like that that are that look a little bit different or lewy body dementia maybe that look a little bit different than typical parkinson's and it's really nice to have that kind of multidisciplinary team because those patients often have additional needs, you know, and to be able to to screen that patient for cognition. And, I mean, granted, we're not doing a big thorough eval, but we can at least screen for it in clinic, and then mm-hmm. we can refer that same day to neuropsych testing, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it does help with kind of that continuity of care and working through the channels a little faster. Yeah. So That's really awesome. Yeah. So, because you're only seeing these patients once every three months, um, mm-hmm. you have a very different model than maybe like a traditional therapy track. Yes. Because you, you mentioned that you do do some types of assessments mm-hmm. and some screens, mm-hmm. um, and then it's just heavy on the education. Yeah. Are they ever like, well, what can I do at home? Yes. Yeah. That Yes, they are. And sometimes there are different protocols. And, you know, for instance, um, in Parkinson's, there's a lot of research about um, voice exercise, for example. Mm-hmm. And so um, most of the time what we do is we'll refer those patients to outpatient therapy. Okay. So um, every once in a while, we may have a patient who's homebound and they can't. And so that can be a little bit of a challenge of finding a home health agency that also has training in uh, yeah. like, you know, Lee Silverman voice therapy or speak out voice therapy. That's more intense voice related um, therapies for Parkinson's. But we have been pretty fortunate of co- being able to collaborate kind of around the city um, to find providers that are kind of in, in the patient's backyard 
nice. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Good. Yep. Um, and then on, I think you mentioned earlier on Fridays, you do like a voice clinic yeah. with your Parkinson's voice. Yeah, it's so fun. So what it is, is it's like a, it's an hour long voice kind of therapy group that we lead where we go through when we do kind of phonation exercises. So the ahs and the pitch glides and all that stuff. And then we do some functional phrases or words that they might say often and then we do conversation, we do reading passages, we do a little, we sprinkle in a little bit of cognitive stuff, like, you know, that we'll have the whole group of 10 go around the room and each one say the step of making a pie. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the first one has to say, I get the, the flour out, and the next one says, I get the salt out, and they kind of go around the room and kind of go through all of those steps. Um, but the coolest thing about that group is just the camaraderie that you Mm -hmm. see from the patients because they get to know each other and they when when you know you've like got it is when they cue each other you know I'm like yes (laughs) it usually takes about a month into therapy before they're like feel comfortable enough to say I'm sorry I didn't hear what you said you need to speak up Um, but then I'm like yes it's not me anymore it's them (laughs) um and it lasts an hour we do I mean for the most part they're talking a lot during that hour but I think it's a little bit of that accountability you know we've all had those patients where they're like gung-ho in therapy when you're working with them Mm one-on-one then they get discharged and it's like oh this homework they throw it away you know it's like yeah it's done I'm done um and so this kind of weekly accountability they don't get that slide right they have to they know that they're going to walk in the door and I'm going to say how did your homework go this week did you get your exercises done how many times did you do them you know that kind of stuff they know that so mm-hmm. it kind of keeps them motivated um, and I do think one thing we do a really good job of in the Parkinson's clinic where I work is to say you know this is a disease that if you don't use it you'll lose it you need to again kind of empowering that patient to take control of their disease and not let their disease control them mm-hmm. and saying you know if you do these exercises you can see benefit but you have to do them yeah. and it has to be kind of part of your daily occurrence from here on out um so that piece has been nice to be able to see patients kind of realize that um capture patients early like we have I have a couple patients in some of the groups that they actually started working with me in voice therapy before they really had very much hypokinetic dysarthria at all you know I mean we kind of caught them before they really started and so they know what to look for Mm -hmm. and it's so nice I mean they really and they see they they get to see people who maybe do have a little bit of voice impairment and they know the importance of not letting it get to that level. Get to that level. Yeah. Yeah. Stemming the tide. Exactly. So nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. That's an important perspective to have that's helpful. It is. And you know, the other cool thing about that environment is for students, it is so neat for them to learn from the patients in a, in a different way. Like a group dynamic is just different than individual therapy. Um, and they get to see the personality come out of patients, and um, also they get the they get the instant gratification when they have said something or given an instruction. It was confusing, and the whole group is looking at each other like, "What are they talking about?" <laughs> they get that times ten, right? Like right, it's not yeah. just one patient doing it; it's all ten of them. Uh-huh. And so I think it's been it really and like 
I, I was worried at first because, you know, I mean, most students are like, I went into speech therapy, so I didn't have to teach a big group of people. <laughs> <laughs> and then they then they get over the nerves of being in front of a bunch of people, and they love it. So, um, And the patients and the participants that do it, they they like the students, too. I mean, it's, it's just a really neat environment, I think. Yeah. So I've enjoyed it way more than I thought when I took it over. I, <laughs> I hadn't done it before until about the last two or three years, and I took it over for a college who had moved out of state and I kind of was like I don't know if that's really my thing or not and because of being in front of a group I wasn't sure that that was what I wanted to do either and then after like the first one I was like oh this is so fun I love this so <laughs> that's yeah. awesome yeah I got over myself <laughs> <laughs> now for that um voice group um is there like a start and a stop time to it? Do they go through cycles? Do you just have people in there forever? Like, what does yeah. that look like? So um, they are, so because we use student clinicians, it's during the school calendar. So it's semester long, essentially. So, roughly 16 weeks? Yeah, roughly 16 weeks. So for spring and fall, it's 16 weeks. And for summer, it's about six weeks. Okay. Um, we have patients that can, they can consecutively like sign up. So they don't have to graduate, so to speak, mm, out okay. of group. They can continue on group. So it's really kind of looked at as a maintenance program for participants. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we do have patients that do it for a semester, and then they take the sem- next semester off, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Um, but the majority of our patients are returned. They come back every semester. Nice. So, yeah, it is. It's really cool to see, you know, the. I've had a couple participants who I saw in clinic and I had known them for years because they had been long-term Parkinson's patients and I'd even seen them individually for therapy and they told me that I was crazy that they would never, I would never see them in a group. That's not their thing. They don't, they don't like that kind of, they don't like support groups is what they kept telling me. And these two gentlemen now come every single week. They never miss a week, you know? So it's just funny how kind of once they tried it and realized, oh, this is pretty cool. And I do get this practice that I don't naturally get during the day. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. they they bought in. So Nice. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right. Is there anything else you want to talk about, about the SLP role in multidisciplinary teams? I don't think so. I mean, the only other thing that I was going to mention is, you know, when you work in these clinics that are kind of pretty specialized, I think leaning on the research and finding people that do what you do that um, maybe are not quite in your city but are in your region is really important. So I um, have found like being able to collaborate with people that are maybe more of the PhD research route and I'm the clinical piece of it to have that collaboration in clinic has been really nice. So we do have um, some different researchers that come to clinic that recruit from our clinic for speech and language. So that's been really neat to see, yeah. you know, our patients. Well, getting, name drop, girl. Tell oh, me who's like mm, swinging by. And is, well, so John Brumberg, who does the computer brain interfacing stuff at KU main campus in Lawrence, he has some research, and I got to see one of his patients today. And John puts, John and Kevin Pitt, they put these um, caps on patients that have surface electrodes on them. And then um, basically they train patients on how to think about different things as they're using a communication device. So they imagine 
looking at a specific row of letters Mm -hmm. and then getting the computer to recognize that without any sort of real motor movement at all. So it's just that's mind blowing. Yeah, it's yeah. not even the eyes moving; uh-huh. it's just the imagining. Thinking about you're it. thinking about it. So that's some sci-fi level action, right? There. It, it is some pretty <laughs> some pretty crazy stuff. Um, but it's really cool, and the the participants that I know who are doing it are just like they are getting such a kick out of it. Just the the thought of how it works, and mm-hmm. the patients I know are pretty techie themselves. Uh-huh. So this they is just like nerd out. Oh, they, they just, just love, love it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, Millie Cravilla, who's from uh, University of Missouri, she's a Miz- at Mizzou. She does some research, um, motor speech stuff mm-hmm. with our clinic, and she recruits from our clinic, and we um, help support that. And she does both ALS and PD. So mm-hmm. she's doing some great stuff, as well as Panying Rong, who is in Lawrence at KU, Lawrence campus, and she's looking at motor speech. She's trying to figure out what are the early signs of motor speech impairment in patients with ALS and how do you track that over time for mm-hmm. disease progression, So, which would be really great information, you know, for a practitioner to have. Is mm-hmm. like, what is, what should we be looking for? Yes. What's the very first sign that there could be something at play yeah. and how we don't miss that? So we get those patients to be proactive about voice banking and mm-hmm. message banking yes. and archiving what they want to. Um, so I think it's really exciting. Like, I can remember when I was in school, there was just not very much that we had to tell patients about what was available in research. And now I'm like, yes, (laughs) the wheel of change is coming, you know? So I think that's great. And it's finally kind of starting to catch up to some of the diseases like PD, you know, Parkinson's disease that has had some research and has had some really strong research. So, Um, and then there's Mm -hmm. people like Emily Plowman from the University of Florida, and she's doing some really cool stuff with um, the expiratory muscle strength trainer, that Mm -hmm. EMST 150. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit of like, is there a place for some exercise in ALS? And saying, well, maybe like moderate load of, you know, expiratory muscle strength trainer, that little thing, maybe a moderate load of exercise could be beneficial for patients for even with bulbar ALS. And, you know, for the longest time it was like, don't do anything. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like there's there's um, work that's being done and and it gives patients again some hope of something that they can do like you asked earlier about what they can do when they're not with you you know that's one thing that patients feel like oh I can do this I I learn how to do it from the speech pathologist maybe I have a couple sessions of learning how to use that EMST 150 but then I can take it home and I do it Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's really cool yeah and um, yeah and then just practitioners that are doing what I do in different clinics like I have collaborated a lot with um, Melanie I'm sorry Mallory Moore from Cox Health in Springfield and Mallory actually finished her SLPD like two months before me so um, we kind of were in that same road together and um, we've presented at ASHA together and different things but it's just nice to have somebody who like She's in the PD clinic and the ALS clinic at her hospital. So to have somebody like that that I can kind of collaborate with. And then Michelle Wheeler at MU in Columbia has done a ton of work over the years with um, AAC devices. And she's just so good to, like, bounce ideas off of. When I was working on my SLPD program, 
I was kind of coming up with these patient-friendly um, documents for people to use that they could go through and learn how to, say, message or voice bank. And mm-hmm. I had written in there, um, you know, patients should consider doing this as, as soon as possible. And I can remember that Michelle wrote in the margin, like, of my edits, she wrote, what do you mean, patient? Shouldn't everybody voice bank? <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, I should. So, you know, just kind of those really relevant comments that you get from provi- or your colleagues. And I think just opening yourself up to, like, getting that feedback, mm-hmm. right? Because it's it, it's a little vulnerable at first to be mm-hmm. like, I thought I had this thing as a well-oiled machine. I thought I knew what I was doing. And then to open yourself up to saying, maybe there are, is a different way of doing this or a better way of doing this. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so that's just been really great. I think I've kind of, over the years, just kind of gotten over myself a little mm-hmm. bit as a provider and just been like, hey, I don't really care. I can <laughs> make a mistake and yeah. I can learn from it and um, I can learn from other people. And I think that's just a really great place to be as a provider. It's just trying to always learn more, mm-hmm. be open to that learning process. I love it. I love all of that, like, so much. That was a big driving force of this podcast was to kind of show how important it is for us to get outside of our own little tiny circle and to reach out to other colleagues who are doing similar things or, or more advanced things and yeah. to, to become friends with them, to right. learn from them, to collaborate with them and how it enriches our own practice, which then will enrich the patients that we treat and we see and anybody else we come in contact with. So I completely agree. Yay, completely Lindsay. Agree. <laughs> I didn't even, like, prep you for that. You're just awesome. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. No, this has been so fun. I mean, it's nice to to talk to somebody else who kind of is on the same wavelength as far as kind of general, honestly, like professional um, philosophy, you Mm -hmm. know, of somebody who kind of is like, yeah, that is how I see things. Um, Because I think so many times, um, you know, the older model of being very hierarchical with patient care, um, I really hope that we're kind of moving in a different direction now. Because I think, I, think the, so. I think so, too. I think the more we arm our patients, the better. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that sometimes that seems very easy to us. But when I actually started to, like, make all of my documents for my SLPD patient-friendly, I realized how hard it was uh-huh. to, like, simplify what we do. Yes. You know? Evans, yes. It's hard. Sometimes I have to just revert back to medical speech and then be like, okay, now I'm going to go back and translate what yes. I said. Because <laughs> exactly. it was like I'd learn how to say everything in, like, you know, smart ease. Mm-hmm. And then exactly right. I just, I really struggled with, because uh, I hate calling it dumbing it down because you're not. No. You're just using more direct known language and terminology that's exactly right and I really struggled with that and Mm -hmm. I still I need to practice that more and you you do have to practice it right I mean like you have to make yourself do it Mm -hmm. because it is our natural inclination I mean we had how many years of education pounded in our heads about (laughs) this is how you say it this is how you say it and then the whole thing with documentation is it needs to be skilled terminology in your documentation to demonstrate that you've provided a skilled service right but then when we turn around and we are talking with our patients and explaining things to them We've got a code switch. We do. We do. And I mean, that is exactly what it boils down to is being able to code switch on the spot, which 
is a cognitive load in itself. Oh, heavens, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is. it's hard. That's so. why it takes practice. It does take practice. Make it like a muscle memory. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Lindsay. This was awesome. Great. Oh, thanks. I appreciate, I appreciate it. it. No problem. Um, to wrap up our little talkie talk, do you have kind of like a favorite mantra or just a phrase or how you maybe... You know, you work a lot with graduate students, mm-hmm. and it can be very traumatic for them. They're very stressed out, like, right. 24-7. Right, they are stressed out 24-7. <laughs> like, what's something you you tell them to encourage them or give them hope or inspire them, or even your patients that are yeah. really struggling with some rough information? So a lot of times what I'll tell my patients to do is, like, I'll, I'll say to them, you know you've got it when you're not thinking about the 25 things that you need to do in the visit, but you're listening to the patient and asking them a question based on what they just said. Mm. Like that's when you know you've hit the sweet spot, right? When you are actively listening and you're not thinking, oh God, on my on my sheet, the clinical encounter, I need to ask how they communicate on the telephone with background noise, with you know, mm-hmm. but just mm-hmm. you're talking to them. Yep. Um, and so that's why I always try to tell my patients or my students, be conversational. Go into that room and say, hi, I'm Lindsay. I'm a graduate student. So nice to meet you. I, we're going to talk to you a little bit about speech and swallowing, but interrupt whenever you have questions. Just say it like that. It doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to have all the pretense and all the um, formality, but just talk to the patient like you're talking to a, another person that you yeah. interact with. Um, and I think with patients, what I I, I try to like instill in them a couple like nuggets of research that aren't really um, necessarily about progression of the disease, but just simple things like, you know, being part of a multidisciplinary team is advantageous to survival rate in ALS, for example. You know, so just telling a patient, just being here helps you mm. with your disease. Mm-hmm. You know, just being here, talking to all of us, patients that do that have a better prognosis than those that don't, you know. That's and powerful. That's huge, right? Mm-hmm. And um, just kind of empowering them, as, you know, and I'll always say, I know this, the first visit's hard. I mean, pe- people have just been told they have catastrophic diseases, right? Mm-hmm. They have every right to be shell-shocked. Yeah. And so one of the things I always say is, read through stuff, but come and, like, send me an email two or three weeks down the road when you've kind of had time to decompress and like figure things out and know where you stand and then ask me questions you don't have to feel like on the spot you have to come up with 10 questions to ask me um and I think just being available to people is important yeah um in this kind of care because it is different you know I'm not going to see them every week Mm -hmm. like you would in traditional therapy so allowing those ways for communication I think are important nice so yeah well I appreciate it you're welcome thank you for having me thanks for coming on you're welcome Huge thanks to Dr. Lindsay Heydrich for sitting down with me and talking out basically all of her work, like her entire week. I think we just sat down and fleshed out right there for you to listen to. (laughs) I thought it was really interesting, though, and really fascinating style, like style of engagement. You know, it's just really education heavy and evaluation kind of tracking a person's progression through um, a neurological disease process and assisting them throughout those stages. Like, that's pretty interesting stuff. Um, Coming up next week on the Speech Uncensored podcast will be Sarah from Honeycomb Speech Therapy to talk about meaningful aphasia therapy. 
and she's already sent me over a whole mess of links and an article and just all kinds of really neat stuff that I'm really excited to share with you next week. So I'm a big geography nerd, and if you haven't figured it out by now, I'm just basically a nerd about almost anything. But um, I wanted to give a little shout out to listeners in Chandler, Arizona, Tifton, Georgia, Sugar Grove, Illinois, Brewster, New York, Cerritos, California, Redfern, Australia, Chippenham, England, and North York, Ontario. So I just wanted to let you guys know that I'm so glad that you're listening and there's like a ton more of you guys out there and I'm just going to pick really random city names that I see pop up on that list and just be like, there's a little soul there who's listening to the podcast and tell you thank you for listening and that I hope you're enjoying the information that you're getting and that it's helping you because you know, the overall goal is that all this learning and all this information, um, nourishes your practice. And so, no, wait, I'm supposed to say that you'll flourish. Wait, did I get it backwards? I think I was right the first time. Nourishes your brain so that your practice can flourish. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what I want to say. Okay. Anyway, that's the goal. (laughs) So thanks for listening. You guys are the best. I I appreciate you all so much. And if you could leave a review on iTunes. That's what helps people find this podcast. It lets people know um, that it's something worth listening to. So pass that on. I'd be grateful. And remember, show notes are at speechuncensored.com. So check it out. Till next time, take care, y'all. Bye.